0: Would you join me as we pray together? Lord, I can't help but think that this text of Scripture is such medicine for our souls. It is an extended prayer pointing us to you, directing our attention to the one who hears prayers, especially the prayers offered in humble, contrite acknowledgement of our sin and our need for a Savior. So, Lord... Teach us, we pray, the glories of your gospel, and may we appreciate our Savior all the more as we read this passage, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Edwin Orr is known by many to be one of the leading experts and historians of the study of revivals. He has studied a number of different incidents in history all through the years, chronicling all of the different accounts of firsthand witnesses of people who have experienced a great moving of the Holy Spirit in a time of refreshing. And while he was speaking one time on the campus of Wheaton College, Pastor Orr was asked by some of the students there that what, what, what might be some signs that would indicate that there is a revival underway. And his response was fascinating and very significant. He said this, whenever Christians get right with God about their sins." How do you know if there's a revival underway? When Christians get right with God about their sins. Well, weeks went by from the time that Pastor Orr was there on campus and they had various special services that they were holding there on Wheaton College campus. This is many years ago. And the Dean of Students wondered out loud, What it would be or what could be that might be hindering the work of the spirit of god there on campus as they were all seeking to really uh, strive to seek after the lord together one of the student leaders on campus about that time began to confess his sins out loud in one of the chapel services what followed after that was another student who stood and began to confess his sins After a while, they realized that this was going to go on for a while. They canceled classes that particular day. Lunch was skipped. And even after a pause at the dinner hour, the services went on and on with further confession of sin, other testimonies, until the early hours of the morning. Profound changes then began to permeate and affect that campus. There were many apologies that were made during that period of time. There were many offers of restitution that came. People who said, well, I stole this from somewhere on campus. I'm going to make sure I give it back and give even more money back. Hardness of heart was replaced by tender humility. Even faculty members were acknowledging their own need to ask for forgiveness and ask for apologies. A deep spirit of repentance Repentance pervaded the entire campus. It was amazing. It was not at all unusual to find the chapel full of people standing, weeping, and confessing their sins and asking for forgiveness. When I read of records like that, of incidents like that, I say to myself, Lord Jesus, do it in our day. Holy Spirit, do it in our day. Not just to read about something that's happened in the past but to see that happen even in the present. And the more I've been reading this text of Scripture here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and I would urge you to make this something you read and reread and reread all this week as we prepare ourselves for a week of prayer. This is, again, again, God's sovereignty. How I brought all this together. I didn't really plan this too well, but it just sort of came together so nicely. As next week, starting off next Sunday, we have a week of devoted, devoting ourselves to a special emphasis of prayer in our church week, in our church life. And here in chapter 9, we find Nehemiah and much evidence in this chapter of the Holy Spirit's work of revival among the people of God. It was a revival that was not characterized by sensational healings or emotionalism. There aren't people standing up, making strange sounds, doing bizarre things. But what we find here is a willingness on the part of these people to confess their sins before God in what I have called in the title of my message today, earnest humble prayer. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah contains the longest formal prayer in the entire Old Testament. And As you consider this prayer, I want to make several observations regarding genuine confession of sin. Indeed, if God is going to show His moving among us, then this is going to be an area where we'll see Him work. The first point I would like to suggest to you as we make our reflections on this text is that the context of For confession of sin, the context is a sincere response to the Holy Spirit's convicting work following the reading of God's word. You see, the prayer that's recorded here in chapter 9 is best understood in its proper context. We don't just jump into this text and think that it exists on its own. It has something that preceded it. There was a time in which the Holy Spirit's convicting work in the hearts of these people was really the response to what happened in chapter 8, which I've preached on a number of weeks ago. And we haven't preached on it recently, but we had to, did uh, preach on it uh, some time ago. There was a time of reading aloud publicly and explaining the scriptures that began this whole uh, fruit now of this prayer found in chapter 9. In a sense, you could say that the response of the ministry of the word in chapter 8 is seen in chapter 9. And even though there were weeks that had transpired now from what happened there in chapter 8, it's clear that the people of God, their hearts have been stirred. They have become aware uh, in a fresh and vital way of how amazing God's grace has been to them, despite a long record of their failings. Not theirs only, but all of the failings going way back in their history Now, here's one of my key observations if I read this text. Considering its context, God's Spirit uses God's Word to bring conviction of sin. God's Spirit uses God's Word to bring conviction of sin. You say, why is that? Well, I would suggest you the principle from Romans chapter 3, verse 20, helps us to understand. 320 of Romans says, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. So that the more I'm reading God in his revealing of his mind, revealing of his ways, the more I understand what God has ordained for his people, the more I understand and discern what is displeasing to him. I understand the more as I read the word, the more as I, I listen to the word of God, I become aware of what God's intent and God's will is for his people and i would suggest to you that no one will ever be filled with genuine remorse for sin apart from a clear understanding of the word of god i grew up listening to and being told and taught and uh, repeating oftentimes the westminster confession of faith in the shorter catechism and the definition for sin i have given you some notes there in your in your uh, the definition in your in your notes The brief summary of that statement is what is sin? And the answer is sin is any want, which is another word for lack, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a very helpful definition of sin. Sin is defined in relationship to the law of God. The law of God is the expressed will of God revealed to us in Scripture. And sin is not what offends us, which we tend to sometimes say, oh, you've sinned against me because it's something that hurt my feelings or something. But let's talk about sin in its ultimate form is understanding this is what falls short of God's righteousness, God's righteous standard. That's what sin is. And God's standard is known to us only in the revealed word of God. First Timothy chapter, sorry, First John chapter 3, verse 4, you might want to jot that down in your notes is another helpful verse that pre- teaches this same principle along with Romans three. In 1 John chapter three, verse four we read, "Whoever practices sin also practices lawlessness, so that he equates sin with people who completely uh, are, are uh, no longer anchored to the law. Whoever practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness." It is a, a, a clear stepping beyond the boundaries of what the law prescribes. And so as we look in this text in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, we read that the sons of Israel assembled with visible signs of remorse and with grief expressed. They, verse 2, what did they do? They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It's clear that they had been prompted to do this. It didn't just come out of nowhere. There's, there's a sense of, Of vital understanding of what preceded this chapter is so important to understand. They were recently reminded of what God had been teaching them in the Word, of revealing His will to them, of revealing His ways. And you'll notice, of course, in verse 2 that they not only confessed their own sins as individuals, but they began to realize we need to own all these sins as a people. There's so many of these areas in which we've all failed. We share them together. How do we bring this down to our context of what we're doing in everyday life? Well, I'd like to start off by thinking through what do we understand when we say the verb to confess, quote unquote, our sins? What does it mean to confess sins? Well, the word there, confess, literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. When we confess our sins, we are, in a sense, agreeing with God. We're saying God has already said that sin is that which falls short of his will, his intended uh, ways for us. And therefore we say, you know, you're right, God. I have strayed from your ways. I have gotten off the track. I have turned my back on you and gone my own way here. Sin is agreeing with God that we have done those things we should not have done and we have neglected to do the things that God has clearly commanded us to do. So humble confession of sin omits all sentiments, of defending ourselves or of bringing forward excuses for what I do before God or somehow rationalizing what I did as well wasn't that bad a thing, you know, I mean, I I wasn't as bad as Shirley or I wasn't bad as Susie or I'm not as bad as Tom or Fred over here, whoever. No, it's no more the comparison and minimizing, it's acknowledging. No, I agree with you, God. I'm clearly out of line here. We admit what God already knows to be true. That's what confessing of sin involves. We call sin what God calls it. It's sin. Sometimes that's hard for us to do, isn't it? <laughs> Came across a rather humorous story or interesting story of, in history of this Frederick the Great. He is the king of Prussia. Maybe you haven't heard much about him, but uh, he visited a prison there in his kingdom one day and he was talking to various inmates, one after the other after the other. And there were endless tales that the king heard of all of their claims of innocence, claims of misunderstood motives as to what was really behind what they perhaps uh, had a resident uh, to admit they did, and various forms of exploitation that they claimed were committed against them. And finally, the king stopped at a cell of a particular convict, convict who was rather quiet. He hadn't been saying much. He wasn't bringing forward all of his various claims of innocence. And so the king said, well, uh, I suppose you're an innocent victim, too? And the man shook his head, kept his head down, and said, no, sir, I'm not, he said. I'm guilty, and I deserve my punishment. And so the king turned to the warden, and he said, warden, here, release this rascal right here, this man, before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people who are filling this jail. It's when we finally admit to God what he knows to be the truth that we begin to say, God, I have to admit to you, I have really gone astray. When was the last time that you read a portion of scripture and you earnestly and honestly, in reading that scripture, began to say, Lord, I admit to you the truth. The condition of my heart clearly indicates I'm out of line here. I've strayed. When was the last time you took responsibility for your sin, rather than blaming your sin patterns or the sin habits that you have, on those that you've learned them from, in the past, i.e., your parents, or maybe for some of us, the lack of parents, or maybe you're saying, "I blame it on my circumstances. Traffic was so terrible that day. That's why all those things came out of my mouth." That's not confession of sin. Out of the heart, mouth speaks. Rather than blaming other people or blaming other outward circumstances, God welcomes us to come to him humbly and say, Lord, I'm going to shoot straight with you today. I'm going to honestly say the same thing that you know to already be true, and I agree with you, I am in need of a Savior today. I'm sinful, and there's much evidence in my heart and life. I'm wondering if the condition of your heart can be compared for some of us like a small room where the shades are normally pulled low. And it's a very darkened room most of the time. And if someone were to ask you if this room is your life, and they say, well, how is your life? Uh, what's the room of your life like? It's, uh, would you say it's pretty clean? And most of us would say, yeah, it seems pretty clean to me. Last time I checked. But if we were to fully open the curtains and let those blinds up and let the direct sunlight into that room, what would we see? Probably a thick layer of dust, all sorts of cobwebs that have collected now on and under all kinds of things, all kinds of dust balls that have accumulated throughout scattered throughout the room that we didn't even see, didn't even realize were there because we've been living in a darkened room I would imagine that God, through his spirit, he loves to illuminate the darkened rooms of our heart. He loves to bring into our hearts, as we read, as we hear the word of God, we become aware that there's light now penetrating into this darkness. And we've been so comfortable living in the shadows, living in the darkness, that we haven't really been dealing with some of the things that are really building up there. And have become a problem. And as the Spirit searches the hearts of those of us who attempt to find safety, oftentimes in remaining aloof from other Christians, there are some of us who say, I don't want to get close to other Christians because they might be used of God to bring light of the truth of God into my life and begin to expose some areas of my life I don't want to deal with. And so if I just keep my distance, nobody will know what's going on in the real realities of my inner world. Some people, have, unfortunately, they spend their life enjoying living on the edge of close Christian fellowship. They don't let anybody into their darkened room of their lives. They don't want any of their brothers and sisters to shine the light of God's word upon their hearts and minds. And may I suggest to you that in avoiding those discipleship opportunities, living on the fringes, as it were, my friend, We oftentimes are not enjoying the deep, rich benefits that come for those who say, I can agree with another Christian that I am a person who needs a Savior. I need grace. I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. So sometimes some of us will avoid those discipleship opportunities to learn the Word of God because we don't want to give up the secret sins that thrive in darkness. And even as I suggested earlier today of hearing the testimony of a man who struggled with a a sexual brokenness, that's an area where many people don't want to talk about the fact that they're broken and they're struggling and they're having many difficulties and, and they know that they need to change and yet no one ever wants to talk about them. And I say again, would you and are you willing to invite and welcome the Holy Spirit to shine the light of his wonderful, life-giving word into your darkened heart and mind and make visible those areas of your life that you know you need to confess, to say the same thing, to acknowledge those areas of sin and to seek his cleansing and forgiveness. When was the last time you made this your prayer? At the end of chapter 139. David goes through and God knows everything about me. God knows me inside and out. God knows where I am and where I go, no matter what I do. There is no hiding from God. Psalm 139, right? He says it's, that such knowledge is so wonderful to me. He is thrilled to know that God knows everything about him. Not like the gods of the statues and idols that other nations were worshiping. The God, of true God, he is omniscient. He knows everything. So David reflects on that and then he says this. Psalm 139, 23, 24, the end of the chapter. Search me, O God. Not search my neighbor. Don't search my husband or my wife or search my kids. Search me, O God, and know my heart. But he already admitted, God already knows your heart. <laughs> That's what the whole psalmist just said. So what is he doing? He's saying, Lord, I am submitting now to you. I welcome you to come and reveal my heart to me. Search it and see if there's any hurtful way in me. My friend, if you make that your prayer and you're honest and humbly and earnestly making that a prayer, I tell you the Spirit of God is working in your heart because that is an invitation for the Lord to use His Word and begin to reveal the things that you need to deal with and confess. And that's the beginning of steps of seeing really Significant life change. And I would suggest to you, our second point, an even greater sense of understanding who God is and the glories of the gospel will become all the more precious to you. That leads me to my second point. The goal of confession of sin is to redirect our hearts toward the gospel and toward a renewed appreciation of the grace of God. If all you hear me say today is, oh, become obsessive about your sins, look in your heart all the time, and just sit there and focus. No, no, no. The idea of confessing sin is to redirect our thoughts and our minds and our focus of our lives upon the God of grace. That's really what you need to understand in this rich, rich text here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, I'm going to skip over this thing. It's just a shame to have to do this. It's either that or a four-hour sermon. So what do you want? I mean, I have to live within the realities that uh, we all uh, probably are not going to endure that kind of oversight here and understanding. But this prayer of confession here is so different from maybe your understanding of prayer confession that you may have grown up with. Some of you grew up with the thought that I have to go to a particular place and go into a particular closet of some kind of uh, room, and I open a door, I go in there, and there's a person on the other side of some little uh, opening there, and I'm gonna speak to this person in this strange kind of exchange, and I have to talk to a priest and acknowledge all these various things, about, myself, and he's gonna give me directions on what steps I need to take to get myself back to some state in which I am now, uh, my sins are dealt with in such a way as to find some sort of penance. May I suggest to you that has no thought or even concept in this text of Scripture? What do you have is a prayer that's made directly to God. That's what these people are doing. They're praying directly to God. And they are doing so confident that the God to whom they are offering the, their sins and confessing them and saying the same thing is the God who has said again and again and has shown them by. By uh, types and by symbols and by various ways of reminding them, there is a substitute I'm supplying to you so that you can find true forgiveness for all that you want to admit and acknowledge. you've gone wrong, gone wrong and sinned and gone stray. He's saying there's hope for forgiveness for you. that's why you come and confess them. So in chapter nine, we read this lengthy list of God's acts of grace shown to. So many people who you find were unworthy of that kindness and graciousness and goodness. He talks about in Abraham, Abram, verse 7 and 8, going all the way back to Abram. And so there was the faithfulness of, of this covenant that God made with him. And then you find in the times in which 9 through 11, the, his uh, compassionate work of redemption for his people who were in bondage in Egypt. He did not forget them. He brought them out of Egypt in an amazing way and then his guidance for those people as they wandered in the wilderness, verses 12 to 15. Here is God dealing with them, dealing with them in a gracious, wonderful way. And then we see, and despite all these undeserved acts of grace, look at verses 16 and 17. How'd they respond to all that? Well, they acted arrogantly. Can you relate to that? Acted arrogantly, have an attitude of pride? Have an attitude that says, I don't deserve these awful things that come in my life. That's an attitude of pride, right? Arrogant. They became stubborn, it says in the text. They would not listen to the commandments that God gave them. Then look at the end of verse 17. Nevertheless, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You did not forsake them. Wow. Wow. What an amazing acknowledgement. God gave them victory over nations as he continues on through that text so that they could live in the land of Canaan. They settled in the land. They enjoyed the spoils of the land. That's the book of Joshua, by the way, in which he talks about that. Uh, verse 25, they reveled in the God's great goodness. Look at verse 26. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? They didn't just... You know, gently, after a period of time, it seemed a little heavy, and so they sort of just said, well, I'm just going to put this law down. I can't carry anymore. No, they said what? Throw it behind their back. I'm done with this. I can't deal with this anymore. It's like an arrogant, defiant insistence on, I am refusing to do what you tell me to do. In light of all this, God delivered them into the hands of their oppressors. Why? Because they needed to be chastised. They needed to be corrected. Get that attitude in shape here. Book of Judges, he raises up these deliverers. Verse 28, then verse 28, he says they did evil again. And they have various other nations now ruling over them. I can't go through all this history, but it's an amazing summary of the Old Testament. And during this time, the prophets that God raises up, people who are speaking the truth into their life, they call on the people of God to turn. That's a wonderful theme that the prophet said, Turn around. Stop going the direction you are. Turn to God and acknowledge your sin. Humble yourself. Verse 29. They acted arrogantly. They did not listen. It's almost like you could tell. It's like they got their fingers in their ears, right? I'm not listening. You can talk all you want. I'm not listening to you. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. If that isn't a description of human nature, and if, if you can't identify with that, you don't see yourself as having the same problem, then you need to keep reading until you begin to see, this is the story of my life. This is, this is my experience in my walk with God. This is what it has been characterized again and again and again. So we reach verse 30. Here he is. he has been so patient with them for so many years. And we read that he did not forsake them. He put up with all this over time and time and time again. So we have in your notes a long record you see here of repeated rebellion and disobedience. Is given this wonderful, reassuring refrain. Verse 31, In your great compassion, you did not forsake them. Isn't that amazing? In your great compassion, you did not forsake them. You are, verse 30 31, a gracious and compassionate God. My friend, if you can't read those verses and have your heart feel a sense of amazement with God, you need to keep reading it and you've got to pray. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see it. Because that is, to me, one of the most powerful expressions of God's gospel grace that you're going to read. Every time I read of this long symphony of God's dealings with His people Israel, I marvel at this glorious melody of God's grace that is repeated throughout the whole symphony. Again and again you hear this theme. Undeserved favor shown to so many stubborn sinners again and again. Undeserved benevolent benefits that He is freely giving out. Offering gift after gift after gift, repeatedly lavished on what? Ungrateful recipients. Complaining about this, throwing this word away, saying, I don't want to do all this. And here in this prayer, these people are acknowledging that here they are seeing these walls rebuilt. You would think they'd be saying, hey, you know, this old trashy town, we've sort of put it back into good order again. There's no sense of boasting about, look how far they've come. They have come with an awareness of boasting in God because they realize if God hadn't been so gracious, we would have been removed from the entire scene a long time ago, including all of our our former ancestors. Apart from the sustaining, forgiving, restoring grace of God, he says, we have nothing to brag about here. Even though the town now has its gates in place and the walls are fully built. What amazing grace. What unspeakable mercy shown to such miserable sinners. I say to you, if you have an underlined, verse 31, God truly is a gracious and compassionate God. Amen. Now what is our only hope? <laughs> our only hope is the grace of God. Thankful for all this music we sang today. It had repeated allusions to the grace of God. No one ever deserves God's favor and grace. And which is why we turn to Him again and again in humility, we turn to Him with wonder and amazement, acknowledging our own failings, our own transgressions. Like the children of Israel, we've received a long list of blessings. Have you ever really taken some time to think about how God has blessed you? Have you taken some time to reflect on that recently to say, you know, let me, let me sort of do, do an inventory of my life and begin to realize how many ways God's blessed me. We, we don't do that very often, don't do it often enough. And yet we regularly refuse, despite all these gracious gifts that God gives us, we refuse to submit to his authority. We refuse to obey him in his word. And the gospel encourages us to do what? Don't keep walking away from him and say, well, there's no hope for me. I've already messed up and so it's done. I'm at a point now where there's no hope for me. No, don't draw that conclusion. The whole point of this text is to say, because he is so gracious, come back to him. Admit your failings. Admit your sin. Admit that you have gone astray. Why? Because he is a gracious and compassionate God. And he has sent to us a savior, a substitute. Jesus Christ, who never did go astray, who always did the right thing, who has his own righteousness, and he is saying, I take upon myself all of your failings and all the punishment you deserve, and on you, will re- you will receive all of my righteousness on your account, and therefore you are forgiven, you are restored, you are accepted, you are loved, not because you have finally gotten your act together, it's because you've come admitting that you have a desperate need for a savior and you've come with faith and trust in him and what god's done in him for you may i say that god's grace is our only hope the cross of jesus christ reveals a grace that is greater than our sin romans chapter 5 read about that sometime the cross of jesus christ points us to a grace that yes it is a grace that once we understand receive that grace that's so freely given to us, it instructs us, it teaches us, it now begins to shape us in how we are and what we think about our lives to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age, Titus chapter two. That's how grace is to somehow impact us over time. But it also is a grace that does what? It brings us back to the cross again and again and again. I'm wondering what must God do to capture your attention long enough that you will contemplate his triumphant, all conquering, glorious, undeserved, free grace. What does God have to do to get you to really ponder that and consider it? Not just your stubbornness and your sinful ways, but what does God have to do to help us convince us of his graciousness? My friend, you've got to keep the cross as sinner of your thought and life and heart turn with me in your bibles to proverbs 28 verse 13 page number 792 or is it 742 i've got new glasses i can't read okay 792 i think it says of pay, of your pew bible anyway it's proverbs 28 i know that proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. if you hear me say anything today here's the key verse you say why should i confess my sins what, what is the point of that? Doesn't that just become a morbid self-reflection and looking at all that mess and muck in my life? My friend, if that's the end of it, you've missed the whole thing. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That is, you don't acknowledge them, you don't admit them, you're just hiding them. You're not even acknowledging. No, if that way you will not prosper. But he who confesses, and forsakes them will find what compassion or mercy what a promise we all need to hear this all of us who sense our own unworthiness who feel a great heaviness of shame that we carry around with us because of all our failings because of the ways which we know we have gone astray we're very much aware of that reality for many of us we carry it around every day The messy moral pollution of our hearts and all of our past that seems to keep haunting us. My friend, because of this promise, we are invited to take God at His word, to say the same thing that He already says about our sin, which He already knows about, and to just come to say, you know, I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna get on the same page with you, and I'm gonna claim what you've promised me through Jesus Christ is cleansing and forgiveness. My friend, it'll set you free. That's the whole point of the gospel is to give us a joy we can have now with God. I encourage you to claim the gospel promises that God makes to restore us into the joy of fellowship with him, the one who loved us, the one who sent his his son to die for us. And so I give you this quote. You might want to jot this one down. This is from Ed Welch, the wonderful biblical counselor. He says this, confess sin. It always helps you to see the cross of Jesus more clearly. Confess sin. It always helps you see the cross of Jesus more clearly. Some of you know and have played with either Etch-A-Sketch, that's back in my generation. I don't know if they still make those crazy things, but they had this sort of uh, dust that covers a screen, and you get these little knobs, and you scrape things off with this little needle. And they also had those other things where you could draw on them where you take a little magnet and you scrape it across the screen and it holds things on the screen and so you can make these designs and then you would take this little bar and you would scrape it across and everything is removed away you seen those things you know what i'm talking about okay well i would have had one years ago but kids stepped on it whatever it's all gone now but the point is you think about etch a sketch what we're doing is we're saying lord whatever's on the screen of my life it is a mess so i admit that and with the Etch-a-Sketch, you used to just shake it around like this, right? You just shake it and get that dust to cover everything in. With that other f- way of Googling and doodling, you would take the thing and wipe it across the whole thing, and it becomes blank again. My friend, let me just encourage you. Don't think of blanking out your sin as you confess them. Think of I mean, every time you clear the screen, you see only the cross. You see and remind yourselves that that is my hope, that is my joy, that is my assurance, is that Jesus Christ has done all for me, that therefore I can have, what, bury my sins. They're, they're, as far as the east is from the west, I don't have to live with all that shame anymore. And therefore I know my Savior loves me. And he welcomes me. As I confess my sin, he already knows my sin. He already died for my sin. And so I come on his agenda, and therefore he welcomes me to enjoy the riches of His grace. When we confess our sins to the author of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are reminded once again that God's mercies are deeper than anything we did or failed to do. David Paulson. And with his final verse, Psalm 32, verse 5. Psalmist says, After a long, long time of not confessing his sin, after a long, long period of time of trying to go on and somehow Avoid dealing with this past. David finally realizes, oh, what a blessing it is to finally know what it is to be forgiven and to have confessed this. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And listen to this. And you did forgive the guilt of my sin. Man, what a joyous celebration that is when you can know that reality in your heart. Let's pray. Before we pray, I'd like you to find your sermon notes in your bulletin if you have one in front of you. If you don't, that's okay, but I'd just like you to have one there in front of you. At the bottom of the sermon notes, there is a modified confession of sin from the Book of Common Prayer. I realize the print is microscopic. I apologize for that. If you can't read it, and you're like me, you got new glasses, you can't read it, I'm sorry. But maybe you can find ways to read it later in the week. But I'm going to say, if anyone wants to follow along with me, you can pray it in your heart. You can pray it out loud. But I'm going to read this prayer. This is my prayer today. And this is what I want God to hear me saying to him in light of this sermon. Almighty and most merciful Father, I have erred and strayed from your ways like a lost sheep. I have followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart. I have offended against your holy law. I have left undone those things which I ought to have done. And I have done those things which I ought not to have done. And there is no health in me. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon me I am a miserable sinner. Spare me, O God, as I confess my faults. Restore me as I turn to you according to your promises that you have declared to me in Christ Jesus my Lord. Grant, O merciful Father, for Jesus' sake, that I may hereafter live A godly and righteous and sober life to the glory of your holy name. And God's people said, Amen Amen. and Amen. I would say to you.